you all may be seated. And I want to welcome to the stage Greg and Phyllis Dietz. They're going to be sharing with us testimony this morning about how re-engaged specifically for marriage ministries has been impactful in their lives. Here's Phyllis. There is no potion for a perfect marriage, just a perfect God working out his perfect love in two imperfect people. We first participated in Reengage in January of 2017 when our third child was just six weeks old. It was a big step for us as we had never participated in anything like this before. We had let so many things come before our marriage and before our individual walks. Kids, jobs, extended family, etc. Reengage helped us reprioritize and refocus our relationship on him. We were challenged to forgive and extend grace at levels we never experienced. Reengage at its core starts with each person as an individual and challenges you in two ways. The first is to see who you are in Christ and accept that you are worthy of love, that you are forgiven, and that you've been shown mercy. The second is that you're asked to focus on yourself as opposed to simply seeing the faults and imperfections in your spouse. You're asked to check your personal walk and see if that's in the right spot before casting stones at your significant other. Reengage forces to have hard conversations from a place of love and grace as opposed to a place of accusations and bitterness. If taken seriously, the weekly homework will be will be challenging to get away from surface level conversations about work, kids and schedules and will be able to speak and allow you to speak Christ into each other's lives. One of the challenges that reengage focus forces all couples to look at is their family of origin and the patterns that we learn as we get, grow. For us, that forced us to evaluate the messages that we send to our children. It forced us to think about how we handle practical issues in our marriage, such as listening, conflict resolution, and priorities. The 16 weeks we spent with our fellow couples helped us to see that we are not alone and that many of the challenges we face are not unique. Reengage has helped and forced us to make our marriage more Christ-centered. It's allowed us to walk in the truth that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And that relationship needs to be the priority always. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ has also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Dietz, for sharing with us this morning. Well, we're going to be, we're going to kick off in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. As we continue our marriage Sunday, we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15, we find this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. 
The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for the great gift of marriage. I think as we look at Genesis chapter 2 that we get a great sense of why you created marriage and what you created marriage to be. And I pray this morning, Lord, no matter where we fall in our lives at this point, whether we are married for a short time or a long time or whether we're still looking at marriage as something in the future, Lord, I pray that you would meet us, that you would teach us this morning, that you'd be honored in our time, that you would direct us and remind us of what you have intended in marriage. Lord, this morning would be edifying and encouraging to us wherever we find ourselves. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I'll tell you guys, this summer I've been a bit fascinated because we've had several friends that have seemed to have jumped onto this hobby in which they've bought a school bus and have begun to renovate it and take it as a mobile home on the road for vacations and trips. We've had a couple co-workers that have done this and particular one set of friends, they bought it in the spring and they've been renovating it all through the spring and then they took it out on a trip this summer and I was fascinated by the whole journey. Because before their departure, what began essentially with a Instagram-worthy level photo shoot, all right, uh, with all kinds of visions and dreams as to what the trip was going to be this summer was soon quickly, uh, stra- uh, in a sense, shut down because by day one of their journey, they were stranded on the side of the road with electrical issues, okay? By day four, they would realize they had a gas leak in their kitchen and a fire would erupt, threatening to burn the entire uh, bus down to the ground. And they realized they had no fire extinguisher on board. And so they would be running up and down an RV park begging for anyone who had a fire extinguisher to come help them put the fire out. They get the fire put out and eventually as the wife would detail the story, she would be sitting on the steps of the bus crying and weeping and wondering why we ever got into this to begin with, right? Why didn't we just get a hotel, Okay. There were moments for me as I was thinking about our marriage Sunday this week, as I was thinking about their journey, that I thought in many ways it seems a lot like marriage, right? What begins with an Instagram-level worthy wedding photo shoot, right, soon quickly turns into reality as life unfolds. And for many of us, even early on in our marriages, we realize that we're quite disillusioned because we end up with electrical issues stranded on the side of the road, sometimes maritally speaking. Or sometimes for some of us, fires break out in our marriage that we had no idea would occur and it threatens to burn the entire thing down to the ground and we find ourselves wondering and weeping, why did I get into this and why is it so hard? And for some of us that have been married for a while, we wonder, why do we keep struggling in the same ways? This has ended up feeling nothing like what I envisioned and had lofty dreams and lofty expectations from the very beginning. Not that we won out, but we just wonder why in the world did we get into this and what did God intend? And what I want to do this morning for us is I want to simply take a time out. I want to blow the whistle and I want to step back from all of the lofty expectations that so many of us had about marriage. I want to step back from some of the disappointments and the challenges of marriage. And I simply want to remind us at the very outset this morning, the very purpose that God created marriage for. Why did he create marriage? And what did he create when he created marriage and invited us into it? What did he intend marriage to be? And my hope as we look at the very basic purposes, the basic reminder as to why God created marriage, my hope is that it would hit us in three different places. For some of you who aren't yet married, that are looking at marriage as something possibly in the future, that for some of you, you have great excitement about that future hope. For some of you, you have great concern or great fear about that future reality possibly. And for you, I want to remind you as to the purposes of marriage so that it will shape the selection of the person that you want to marry. 
For some of you that are early on in marriage, I remember that I would find myself in the midst of, we don't call them fights, we would call them discussions, right? Uh, in which we would find ourselves in a disagreement, or I would find my wife crying, and I remember thinking early on in marriage, I still don't know what I did. Like, I don't know how I got here, right? I, I quickly will apologize, but I, I don't know what I'm apologizing for because I'm utterly clueless, okay? I remember early on in marriage thinking to myself, wow, this is a little harder than I thought it was going to be, right? And so for some of you that maybe find yourselves early on in marriage, that you're a bit disillusioned or a bit disheartened by the fact that it's harder than you thought it was going to be, I want to encourage you and remind you why God created marriage and what marriage looks like and how marriage develops over time. For some of you that are later on in marriage, for my wife and I, we're over 16 years in marriage now. We find ourselves raising kids. We find ourselves with job responsibilities at the highest level they've ever been that are overwhelming at times. For many of us that are later on in marriage, we've learned to avoid the landmines of marriage. We've become more intuitive of, don't step there. Don't say that in that way, right? That's not going to go well. And so we've, we've learned to kind of create a greater sense of harmony that, frankly, often is more effortless than it used to be in the beginning. But for many of us, I think at that point in life, we begin to also, also put marriage on autopilot at times. That we begin to drift toward other priorities, other things in our lives. And I want to remind us that are later on in marriage as well as to why God created marriage in such a way as we look at the purposes of marriage that will help us reprioritize marriage as we look at how to invest in it as we continue forward. So wherever you find yourselves this morning, I essentially want to take a time out and just remind us why God created marriage and what he created marriage to be. Sometimes we're in the thick of it day in and day out. We begin to lose some sense of perspective. And so I want us to pull back for just a brief amount of time this morning and just simply encourage us and remind us as to what God created when he put man and woman together. And really, if there's one basic idea this morning I have for you, it's this. It's simple and it's this. It's that marriage is a partnership. That when God created man and woman and he put them together as one flesh, what he was creating by its very nature was a partnership. There is great discussion, there is great controversy today in our culture, in our church, as to the diversity of the roles of men and women, whether in marriage or in the church. And we're not going to talk about that this morning, because really what I want to zero in on this morning is the simplicity as to the common call that he had for man and woman in the course and in the context of marriage. That what he created was a partnership by and large. And we really grasp this as we look at Genesis chapter 2. We read it already this morning, but essentially that the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Often when we think of the Garden of Eden, if you're anything like me for years, I thought the garden was some kind of small, quaint garden that we often walk into ourselves that you could imagine taking care of. Uh, as, biblically speaking, as we think about the Garden of Eden, it actually was a vast, giant region. It was a massive garden. It wasn't a small, quaint little garden that you walk into with little gnomes everywhere. I don't know why I went there, but I did, all right? Uh, it wasn't small. It was massive, all right? And so as God uh, creates Adam and places Adam in the garden to cultivate and to keep it, he quickly recognizes that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and he makes him a helper suitable for him. Why? Why does he make him a helper? I think there's a lot of words that could have been chosen here. God could have said, I'm going to make him a lover, suitable for him. But really the purpose here and the reason why I think he says helper is because the, Adam's primary problem was not a romantic aloneness or a romantic void that God looks to fill with Eve. He also could have said, I'm going to make him a friend suitable for him. But Adam's primary problem in this point in time in Genesis 2 was not companionship. It wasn't that he was lonely per se. He also could have said, I'm going to make him a counselor suitable for him. But Adam's primary problem at this point in Genesis chapter 2 was not an incompleteness or a brokenness. 
Adam's primary problem was that he was commissioned to a task that was overwhelming and way too large at a scale that he couldn't handle by himself. And so what does God create alongside of Adam when he creates Eve? He creates a helper suitable for him. It's interesting. I think sometimes when we use the word helper, we have a condescending sense of what helper means. Well, God will describe himself multiple times as a helper in Psalms. So the task or the title of a helper was not in any way a condescending term, but what Adam, or what God was communicating to Adam was, I've given you a task that is way too large for you by yourself. So I'm going to create Eve alongside of you so that you have a partner in the great task that I have given you. The task that I've commissioned to you, there's no way that you're going to fulfill it by yourself. So I'm going to make a helper suitable beside you as a partner in the completion of the task that's in front of you. This past week, I had an opportunity to be with our Southwood team. We were in Honduras, and we saw God do some amazing things this past week. Uh, We had a lot of different teams doing a lot of different things. We had a medical team. We had a kids' ministry team. We had opportunity to go out into the villages and bring rice and beans to different people as well. Uh, We were doing all different kinds of things. We had a construction team, but we also had a vet team. A picture for you guys here of the vet team, uh, in which they would go out to different villages and to different ranches, and they would uh, uh, inject and inoculate all kinds of cows and horses, okay? And I don't know if it was the sovereignty of God or if it was the vengefulness of some of our leaders of the team, but I was selected at some point to go out on the vet team, okay? I'm pretty sure in the coming weeks, some videos and some pictures will surface of me on said team, which I will not be showing you this morning, all right? But as a city boy from Dallas, you have to understand that there's probably no place I am more uncomfortable than on a farm, okay? I have no cowboy in me, all right? I love the Dallas Cowboys, but that's about it, all right? I'm not meant to be, I'm not designed to be living on a farm, okay? And so I was sitting out on vet team. I, I thought it maybe was a kind of a death sentence for me, all right? Two years ago, someone got kicked by, in the head by a horse. So I thought, this is probably the end of it for me, okay? And so we go out, and a few more pictures for you guys. We go out, and we have guys that are roping uh, said cows and horses. We have some that are injecting vitamins into these horses. There are some, like myself, that have the most safest job coming in spring, the cows, with uh, a spray that would prevent lice and ticks and fleas. That was my job, Okay. And so somewhere along the way, as we're going through this, I thought, okay, my presence amongst this team, I think is providing a lot of entertainment for everyone else, okay? Uh, great hilarity has ensued by pictures and videos that you'll see later. Again, not for me this morning, okay? But then I had a moment and I had a thought as eight of us are out there, as a huge group of us out there, all doing different things, all with different strengths, all with different abilities, is what if I was out here all by myself? <laughs> What was starting out hilarious soon got sad, scary, and just flat dangerous, okay? If I had to be tasked with going out to the said place and injecting cows and roping them all by myself, we have a major problem, okay? Genesis 2 felt a little bit to me like the idea of being out on the vet team all by myself. The task was way too large for me to do by myself. As God looks at Adam, as he thinks about Adam in the garden, it's a task that was way too large. And so what God does in the creation of marriage is that he creates a partnership between a man and a woman for the completion of a divinely commissioned task and call. That in the very basic sense as to why God created marriage and what God created marriage to be, he created a partnership between man and woman for the completion of a divinely commissioned task and calling. That's what marriage is. We have all kinds of ideas of of what it will look like at a wedding, what it will look like as we unfold from a wedding into life itself. We have visions of life to come. But the very basic underlying purpose of what God created marriage to be was a divinely commissioned partnership for the completion of a commissioned task. 
that Adam couldn't do by himself. Really, as I think about so many marriages that I've seen through the years, the ones that I've drift to, the ones that I've learned the most from, the ones that I just want to be around, they all have this key mark, a mark of a partnership between a couple. Uh, I think practically growing up, I saw my parents do this in a lot of practical ways. As I came into college, I saw our senior pastor, who at the time was my college pastor, Brian and Tracy Fisher, do this spiritually. I saw them before kids as a partnership for the completion of the Great Commission. We didn't know them as Brian or Tracy. We knew them as Brian and Tracy. They were always together. They were a partnership that had leaned on one another, were contributing to one another's great fulfillment and pursuit of the Great Commission. I think in entertainment, even in TV, if you want to go way more superficial, you think about Chip and JoJo, a fixer-upper, for those of you guys who like that show. And I think what has attracted so many to them is not just their humor, but it's the sense of a couple who are a partner for the completion of a task and a project, that you see them lean on one another. I find for myself, I just so drift toward the couples where you see a healthy sense of partnership, where you see them lean on each other. One of my favorite examples, biblically speaking, of a marriage is a couple in the New Testament that we see very little of. We have very few verses of, but it's a glimpse I want to give you into Priscilla and Aquila's marriage. One of the key passages that were introduced to them is in Acts chapter 18, and Acts 18 tells us this, that Paul went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila who recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And they would later take Apollos aside, who was strong in the scriptures, and they would explain to him the way of God more accurately. We'll find Aquila and Priscilla show up in a few other epistles throughout the New Testament. Though the verses are few, every single time we see them in the scriptures, they always are named together. It's always Aquila and Priscilla. It's never Aquila, or it's never Priscilla by themselves. They're always named together as a pair. The other thing I like about them is not just that they always show up together as a pair, but you see their partnership in a myriad of ways and a myriad of context. It's not just that they were tent makers partnering vocationally together, but as they would take Apollos aside, as they would lean in and begin to teach Apollos the way of God more accurately, they would do it together as a couple. We find out from the epistles they would also host the church together collectively as a couple in their home, that they were a partner both in ministry and outside of ministry. They were a partnership in vocation and in ministry that in every arena of their life that we get to see, we see them mutually contributing to that which God has called them to for one another. I'll be honest, I think for many of us, as we think about marriage, whether you're looking at it in the future or whether you're experiencing it, I think for many of us, what we do in life is divide and conquer. I know for Marcy and I, as we walk through different stages of our lives, we're incredibly differently gifted. Uh, We are incredibly opposite from one another. Uh, And also as we've walked through different stages of life, whether it's because of the limitation of time or it's because of the diversity of gifts in our marriage, there's always a tendency, I think, for us, and I think there's always a tendency in most marriages to move not toward a partnership experience, but to a divide and conquer experience. And here's what I mean. I think for many of us, we divide and conquer life in which we separate out the task of life and we work on them in absolute isolation from one another. So Marcy will uh, cook our meals in our home and I'll come behind and I'll wash all the dishes. She will wash all the clothes and I'll come behind and I'll fold all of the clothes, all right? We kind of have different strengths, different... She likes to create, I like to bring chaos to order, okay? We just have different ways we go about life. I think for many of us, we, we move toward a tendency to divide and conquer in which we don't partner, we don't mutually contribute to one another in the fulfillment of a task. We separate out the task and we work in isolation from one another with no mutual contribution. 
And I think there's two key factors or there's two key uh, signs of a couple who has a tendency to divide and conquer compared to partnership and it's silos and it's self-sufficiency. I think for many of us, we tend to move into silos and we tend to move into self-sufficiency instead of partnership. And here's what I mean. For many of us, I think we move into this tendency where we go, hey, you do your thing, you do your job, and I'll do my thing, right? You orbit in your world, and I'm going to orbit in my world, and our worlds aren't going to overlap, or they're not going to in any way meaningfully contribute to one another in a way that helps each other. We begin to move into and we build silos in separation from one another, either because of complexities, of diversity of gifting, or because of constraints on time. What I love about Priscilla and Aquila is that you see them in every task partnered, mutually contributing to the accomplishment of that task. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys, uh, many of you who know me, uh, I'm an only child, okay? And so what usually happens for people as they perceive an only child to operate is that when it would seem that I would get my way in life, uh, then they say, oh, well, classic only child, right? Just selfish, like, just always gets his way, always gets what he wants, okay? In reality, for Marcy, she will tell you in the midst of our marriage or for many of my coworkers who have walked alongside me through the years, I have less of a tendency to selfishness and I have way more of a tendency to self-sufficiency, okay? I'm going to do my thing in my world, and I'm not going to ask for help, and I'm not going to want help. I was never the kid that wanted to stay after class and talk to the teacher. I just wanted to figure it out myself, okay? And in the midst of work and in the midst of marriage, Sarah DeSosa, who's worked with me for eight years, is smiling as if she knows what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, and so for me, I just have such a tendency to self-sufficiency that being an only child is not so much about being selfish, but it's about being self-sufficient. So for example, uh, let's say Marcy says to me, hey, I think it'd be great if we could rearrange all the furniture in our living room. I'll go, that sounds great. And then I wait for a moment and I find her doing something else. And so I'll go in and I'll move all of the furniture all by myself while she's in another room, Okay. <laughs> And then she comes out and she's grateful that, hey, I rearranged it all. But she's like, why didn't you ask for help? Like, I was right here. Like, what's going on? All right. And I do that all the time. I think for both of, for many of us, I think we have a tendency not to work as partners in marriage, but we have a tendency to separate out into different silos and to work with self-sufficiency so that we don't mutually contribute to one another and whatever God's called us to. I want to ask you a few questions as you think about your marriage or if you're single, as you think about how you operate, whether it's with roommates, whether it's with coworkers, or whether it's with students that you're in a group project with, I want to ask you, as you think about uh, shifting from dividing and conquering to partnership, I want to ask you a few questions as you think about your marriage or you think about your relationships. Maybe it's a conversation for you at lunch. Maybe it's a conversation this evening as you have time or once the kids go to bed. If you're in a stage where you have kids, it's these. How have silos diminished your partnership? What are the ways that you find yourselves operating in completely different worlds from one another with no meaningful overlap, with no meaningful interaction, with no meaningful contribution? I get it. Priscilla and Aquila were common tent makers, so it was really easy for them vocationally to partner with one another. But the great majority of us don't necessarily live in the same vocational worlds with our spouses, right? Or with our roommates. Majority of us are in very separate vocational worlds, So it doesn't work for Priscilla and Aquila like it could work for us since one of us is in one field and one of us is in another field. And so I get it that we're not looking to try to work together in the same office all the time as a couple. I get that. But my question is simply this. As you think about those two vocations that you might find yourselves in or as you think about raising kids or whatever different responsibilities that fall on you as a couple, to what degree do you operate in isolation or to what degree do you actually look for ways to support to ask questions, to care, to enter into that world, to understand it? Or do you just say, hey, that's his or her job. 
good luck with that. I'll see you at five when you come home, right? Or are there ways that we can begin to move into, begin to encourage, begin to support, begin to find ways that influence, contribute, and impact the different silos, the different worlds that we find ourselves in as a couple? Or maybe it's even in ministry. Maybe in ministry, as you think about involvement in a church or involvement in our community, in our city, and community service, are you always serving separately? Or are you finding ways to serve with one another, alongside of one another? Second question, this is the one for me that is the, this, I think hits me the hardest, is how has self-sufficiency limited your partnership? How is there a tendency to not want your spouse's help or your roommate's help? How do you move in that way that leans always in the sense of, I got this, I can do this, I don't need help? I don't think it's just an only child thing. I think for many of us men, we operate this way, right? I got this, I don't need help. It seems to somehow be more manly if we just kind of put it on our shoulders and take off and carry things. I think I know for me, in the midst of my own marriage, in the midst of those places, there's a real sense of pride that I can do this on my own, that I don't need help, that to ask for help is a sign of weakness. And what I want to say to you guys is if God has created marriage to be a partnership, then the inability to ask for help, the inability to mutually contribute to what God has called each and every one of us to is not a partnership, but that's a divide and conquer mentality in which we're not getting the best out of our marriage and what God's created and what God's allowed for us to experience. So I want to challenge you to take some time this afternoon, this evening, and, and, and have the honesty and have the openness to hear and to listen and ask the question to say, hey, honey, how do you see this operating in me? What is it you'd like to see in me? How, how, how could I actually begin to contribute into the world that you're in that maybe I don't know anything about? How can I encourage you in that? How can I support you in that? What would that look like? What is even possible? Or how do you find in me a sense of self-sufficiency that thinks I can always do this myself, that I don't need help? How does that make you feel? How does that impact our marriage? How does that impact our partnership? For those of you who are single that are looking at marriage as a, as a future reality one day, Lord willing, uh, I'll tell you many of the patterns I had as I stepped into marriage were formed by years of relationships and friendships with my family, but also with friends. So that even in the midst of singledom and singleness right now, you are building patterns as to how you partner with one another in non-marital worlds. You don't just step into marriage and figuring out how to partner, but you begin to build those patterns before you ever get into marriage. And so this conversation, these ideas, these patterns are not just for those that are married, but it's a question for you even before marriage. Because it's going to be impacted as you step into marriage, how you're walking relationships out with coworkers, how you walk relationships out with roommates, and how you walk relationships out with your family. That that tendency to move into silos and that tendency to move into self-sufficiency so threatens our ability to build meaningful partnerships, whether in marriage or outside of marriage. And if God's created marriage to be a partnership, then the reality also of that partnership is that it takes time to grow. And here's where I want to leave us this morning. Main idea, if you catch your anything this morning, is that marriage takes is that marriage is a partnership. And if it is a partnership, then the second idea I want to give you is this: that it takes time to grow. That it's not intuitive. That it's not immediate. But it takes time to develop and it takes time to grow. And I think that reality hits us in two different extremes and two different ends of the experiential spectrum of marriage. For some of us, you may find yourself early on in marriage or you may find yourself in the midst of the hard times of marriage. And whether you're early or whether you're in the midst of a valley of marriage, I want to encourage you in relation to two things. One of the things I love looking through the scriptures is seeing a series of marriages through the scriptures that they don't look perfect like Priscilla and Aquila, um, but you see some major issues with their marriages. But what I love to see is what happens over time. Think about Joseph and Mary themselves. The first moment that Joseph hears about his wife being uh, apparently supernaturally impregnated, what does he do, right? 
Peace out. (laughs) Silo 101, right? That is your thing. I don't know how that happened, but I'm headed over here as fast as possible, right? Thankfully, he's not the only husband that's ever done that, right? He turns the corner and he comes back around, right? He figures it out. That's not the last chapter in the story, and thankfully it's not. But I think by and large, my favorite couple in the scriptures has got to be Abraham and Sarah, right? Uh, They miss it so many times, right? (laughs) They are a walking train wreck, maritally, okay? Uh, They both will lie and laugh at God uh, throughout the course of their spirituality. But then my favorite is Abraham, who, for all of us husbands that sometimes feel like we're a bonehead, it's nice to compare yourself to someone who's more of a bonehead sometimes, all right? And it's Abraham, right? Abraham will walk into a place and he will lie about his wife saying that she's his sister, okay? That doesn't seem like that's going to go well maritally, okay? And not only does he do it and get rebuked by his wife and by the Lord God himself, but he does it again, right, in Genesis chapter 20, okay? Abraham clearly is a slow learner in marriage like many of us can be. And yet, God will change both of their names, and by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 11, they don't appear up in isolation in the, in the hall of faith, but they appear together as a couple. Clearly, the chapters of their marriage that we see in the book of Genesis is not the end of the story, but they continue to grow and mature over time. And so if you're early on in marriage going, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. This is not as intuitive as I thought it was going to be. Or you're in the midst of a valley of marriage going, I don't understand why we continue to struggle in the same ways that we struggle. Why are we still back here? Why is this still our thing? Why have we not figured this out? Why have we not learned to communicate through this? In the midst of those places, I want to encourage you, whether if you find yourself in a valley this morning, uh, that don't lose heart and be patient. The marriage is a partnership. It is a dance, which is why it takes time to learn to play music together. It evolves. It grows over time. And so if you're in the midst of a valley this morning, let me encourage you, don't lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Just be patient. Come to the Lord. Lean on the Lord. Asking the Lord to guide you, grow you, reveal to you the areas that need to change, and continue to try to patiently communicate with your spouse. Every one of us has been there. Marriage is a bit of a roller coaster at times and some seasons that are easy and great, some seasons that are hard. Sometimes circumstances that are thrown at us that are just too much for our marriage and we're beginning to wrestle with how do we, how do we process through that? How do we deal with that? How do we communicate through that? Every single one of us has been there. And what we see over and over again is that God continues to mature us and grow us that the chapter we're in right now is not the end of the story. So let's be patient. Let's hang on. For some of us, we are later on in marriage, and frankly, maybe it feels like we're in the good times, that it's not that hard anymore, uh, that harmony and partnership feel fairly easy. I know for me, in the midst of that kind of spot, I find the tendency is to kind of put it on autopilot and move around the cabin and pursue other things. And the challenge I want to give you, if you find yourself in that place this morning where, man, the tires aren't blowing out on the bus, right? Uh, there aren't electrical issues and fires that are breaking out. It seems fairly smooth and fairly good. I think in the midst of those places, what I find is that we often begin to put less investment and less energy into our marriage. We put it on the autopilot, and we move around the cabin, and we pursue other things. And to you this morning, I want to simply encourage you, if marriage is a partnership that grows over the time, then you have to continue to invest in it. You have to continue to pour energy into it uh, to continue to see it grow. I'll tell you, for Marcy and I, there was one single fear that we had of marriage, or maybe one that dominated more than any other, and it was always kind of capsulated with a visual for us. Uh, and it was this, a visual of a 70-year-old couple sitting at dinner at a restaurant out and about and just looking at each other and not talking. <laughs> and, and 
I don't know what's going on for that couple, but for us, as we looked out on it and as we projected onto that couple in that later season of marriage, what we projected or what we feared was that it was a couple that had hit kind of that stage in marriage. They had put on autopilot and there was nothing left to say. There's no more conflicts. There's no more great adventures. There was no more involvement and pursuit to know one another at a newer depth. And there's no great commission or call of God still unfulfilled. For us, as we thought about marriage, even early on, that was the fear. That was the thing we never wanted to pursue or ever be at. That place that we just stared across the table at each other with nothing left to say, nothing left to pursue, nothing left to do. Yet, I think for many of us, as we put things on autopilot, it's very easy to get there if we fail to continue to invest in one another. And so if you find yourself in that spot this morning, I just simply want to say, beware of autopilot and make a plan to invest in your marriage. Don't just let it continue to coast. If you continue to coast, it will fall off. Something will happen. Stresses will arise. Things will begin to break. And you have to invest. You have to care for it. You have to tend for it like any other relationship in your life. This morning as we wrap up, Chris Thompson, again, our pastor of family and congregational care, is going to come up here in a few minutes. He's going to highlight a few great resources for your marriage as you think about the fall semester and a few great ministry opportunities that you have to jump into as you think about how you can make a plan and how you can invest in your marriage. But before he comes up, we have a quick video for you guys that highlights Reengage yet again. It was almost as though all of the other crises in our life were the loudest thing we could imagine. And so the thing that was quiet in the background, our marriage, didn't really get a lot of attention. So we felt like we had a good marriage, but I think both of us realized that we just hadn't focused on our marriage because it was okay. Reengage was that breath of fresh air. We um, did not stop experiencing crisis. Caring for an aging parent um, is always difficult. There were issues that came up that we just hadn't prepared ourselves to have to deal with, nor do I know that you can prepare yourself for that. Sometimes those needs came before my even very own time with the Lord. And I honestly, as a dad and as a husband, didn't always prioritize my relationship with the Lord. It was more about how do I help Maria? How do I help the kids? I am interested in Matt's holiness and I have a part to play in helping him become more holy. And he has that same part with me in helping me become more holy. The greater the intimacy is with Christ, the greater the intimacy was with my husband. And so through those, we had people in our group who have aging parents, um, and they really helped us just gain perspective, but also people that don't have aging parents who prayed for us and cared for us and checked on us and made sure that we were okay. It definitely was a breath of fresh air. It was like we were coming up from swimming through a hard season, and we finally had a chance to breathe. It was just a reminder, that something that we've known for a long time, is that community is critical. And that's what our small group at Reengage did for us, is they became that community for us in this specific situation this semester. We shared this common bond of transparency and vulnerability and honesty, and that doesn't always happen. We weren't just studying scriptures and principles. We were truly engaging in one another's life and in the good, the bad, and the, the messy, everything about it. That's the blessing of a closed group is that you know that there are people that you can be completely honest and transparent with, and it's not going to leave the room. Somebody else's story 
could give words to your very own story that you didn't know how to put it into your words. And so in the end, we're really listening to and engaged with each other and with where our marriage is. We're in tune with what's going on. And that is an exciting place to be again. There are things that I feel that I haven't felt since the first five or six years of our marriage before we had kids. And I think that's just not because those things didn't exist anymore. It's just because the volume was turned down on them. And now we've turned it back up again. Well, it's been a blessing to hear from these couples sharing, from Trey even uh, telling us more about his own insights in his marriage and the challenges that he's given to us. And uh, I wanted to uh, share a quick story with you all. There is an article I read earlier this week from a, an op-ed author named Joshua Rogers, and you may have seen this online as well, but he was sharing about in their first year of marriage with he and his, he and his wife were visiting family friends. And at some point during the weekend, they got into a pretty heated conflict, and they removed themselves and went up to the guest bedroom to just duke it out. And he said, even in his article, he talked about the argument got really nasty, and he said some very disrespectful things. He just was really just kind of coming undone. And at some point during their presenting arguments... His wife, just her face turned ashen, and she looked over and said, oh my goodness, the baby monitor. And he said, he kind of dismissed it really quick, because what the significance of that was that the, the speaker was downstairs in the living room, and the host family was home. But he said, don't worry about it, I turned it off before we came upstairs. And they proceeded to continue with their argument. They didn't even... They didn't even Conclude it in good terms. They were just so heated, and she finally left. Well, when he came back downstairs, much to his chagrin and complete embarrassment, he realized that he had not turned it off. He had turned it to voice activation. And so the host family had heard everything. It was, as he describes, the most humiliating and embarrassing moment of his life, at least to date. So... The reason I tell that story is because it is, it's kind of mortifying, right? It kind of, whether we're married or not, we can probably all, um, at least, we, we all definitely uh, sends a little sh- shiver down our spine, right, about uh, how humiliating that might be. But the reason I do share that is because, truth be told, none of us have perfect marriages, and none of us ourselves are perfect and there's opportunities for each of us to grow and to develop in our marriages. And as Trey said, there, there is a range. Maybe we're doing really well, but there's opportunities for us to yet continue to invest. Or maybe we are struggling. Maybe we're in that valley. And there, this is a great moment for us to say, hey, let's, let's, let's pause here, take a time out, and... Uh, invest in our marriage in this way. So I wanted to go ahead and highlight some of the opportunities that we have on, uh, with marriage ministries, and specifically, uh, there's, a, there's quite a, a range, right? Some of you may be seriously dating or engaged, and this is a great way to, for you to invest in your marriage before it even begins by coming and participating in, in Merge. 
And uh, I was just talking to Rosie this morning about her experience with Merge, and she loved it. She's still even pulling principles from that time that she had in Merge uh, that they took last spring. And so I really want to invite you to, to participate in this is a powerful way to, uh, to, to understand what kind of expectations and things may be coming about in your marriage to come. And so merge happens uh, each fall and each spring for those that uh, want to participate. And then if you have already gotten married and you're a newlywed or maybe up to three years of marriage, there's a couple of opportunities for you. One is foundation groups. Foundation groups are small, closed groups, uh, just a few couples with a, a mentor couple in which you meet about every other week. And it goes for 15 months throughout the, the foundation group curriculum. And uh, it's a great way to start your marriage. Uh, you're in there with other couples that are in the same season of life and no kids, newly married. And you're able to really invest in that way with others who are facing a lot of the same new things in marriage. Another thing that you may not have known about for uh, newly married, we actually have a newly married young marrieds class here at Southwood that meets during the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, over in the education building. And uh, I think hi- very highly of the host couples that are in there. I've known them for a long time, and they're wonderful. Uh, so if you're newly married, as a young married, I would encourage you to go check that out. The uh, last thing we've talked a lot about is re-engage. And re-engage is an opportunity for those of you that have been married for some time to be able to jump in to continue to invest and nurture that relationship that you have that is So, so critical, so important for your own personal benefit, for your own marriage, but also the ways that your marriage is going to affect your family and affect the church, affect the community and the world. Healthy marriages build healthy churches, which this church, obviously, we we want us to have an impact not only in this community, but around the world. So we invite you to invest in these ways. Now, also, I've, I've shared about each of these marriage ministry opportunities, but we also need leaders. Uh, we want to invite you, if you um, would like to participate in a way that you're not only investing in your own marriage, which that can do this, if you're a leader, that can really sharpen your own marriage, but also you're sharpening and encouraging those you're leading. So we would love to talk more with you about these things. So the Dietzes are going to be outside in, at the table. You may have seen that little table out in the, the foyer as you came in. It's got lots of marriage materials on there. There's a couple of uh, big screen monitors out there with touch screens that if you want to know more about uh, any of these ministries, if you want to go ahead and sign up to, uh, to discover more, we want to invite you to do that. I'll be up here if you have any further questions. All right. Well, it was a great time with you all this morning. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. We thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for us to to, uh, invest in marriages through this time this morning, hearing from your word, but also through these marriage ministries. And and we thank you so much, Lord, for the leaders that are uh, at each table and each group and the ways that they are pouring into other couples we thank you, Lord, for the testimonies of those we've heard this morning from the Uptons and the Dietzes. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen marriages in this church and in this community and use us, Lord, 
for your purposes, that your gospel might go forth with power in this community and throughout the world. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.